0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Modern Retail Podcast. I'm Cale Guthrie-Weissman, the Editor-in-Chief of Modern Retail. And this week we have Gabby Lewis, who is the co-founder and co-CEO of Magic Spoon, which is a cereal company when it comes down to it. Um, And I'm always fascinated with sort of the CPG space and the direct-to-consumer space when they they overlap. And uh, Magic Spoon is a is a really fascinating company unto itself. And I want to dig into how it started, where it's going, what's next, and what's on Gabby's mind. So, Gabby, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: Why don't we just start with you? I know that Magic Spoon isn't your first company. Give me a little background about where you've been professionally over the last few years.
1: So, I'm from Scotland originally, came to the U.S. to study at Brown. When I graduated in 2013, I started my first business, which was called Exo Protein, and we were pioneering cricket protein as a sustainable, ethical, nutritious protein source through a line of cricket protein bars developed with a 3 michelin star chef, and I ran that business for five years, sold it about three years ago now, and wanted to stay in the food industry, wanted to do something a little bit ne- less niche than <laughs> crickets, and what could be less niche than cereal? So I started working on Magic Spoon just over two years ago with my business partner, Greg, and it's been a wild journey selling cereal for the past two years.
0: So out of curiosity, was EXO at South by Southwest? And I want to say 2014, because I actually remember that I tasted a cookie that was made with cricket from from a startup company. Um, And was what did that happen to be yours? I actually don't think
1: that was us. At the time, there were there were a surprising number of companies selling various cricket flour-based products from chips to cookies to bars. And we all started around about the same time in 2013 following a United Nations report on crickets as the ultimate solution to the global food crisis. And so there there were several of us at the time all, all doing good work.
0: So out of curiosity, what... You, so is is I guess is your, does your passion lie in food because it seems like you know crickets and cereal are different but they all sort of have food at the core and sustenance so what what made you want to get into that part of 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 the industry?
1: Yeah, definitely food in general for my entire life I've sort of been thinking about food all the time to the point where when I was a kid going on vacation with my parents. I would remember the holidays and describe and plan the holidays we'd go on by the restaurants we'd go to. And so food has always been like very, very important to me, still is. And I'm also very into fitness, nutrition. And so both companies have been geared around healthy, uh, in some cases, sustainable food that is sort of especially good for people who are maybe working out or more active. And obviously Magic Spoon is a high protein cereal. And EXO is geared around these cricket protein bars as well.
0: Got it. Um, so, w- walk me through the the initial concept of Magic Spoon. How did it come about? What you know? W- what was the overall concept?
1: So, to to rewind to the very beginning, before we even zeroed in on the idea, we wanted to enter a new food category that was huge and that hadn't been innovated in in a long time. And when you're looking at the largest categories in the grocery store, you basically have soda, milk, and cereal. And you look at the soda category, there's, of course, endless companies doing healthier versions of soda, whether they call it soda or maybe it's kombucha or or seltzer or something in between. Likewise, if you look at the dairy market, there's endless companies doing plant-based dairy, lab-grown dairy, and everything in between. And then a few years ago, we walked the cereal aisle and it really looked the same as it did 20 years before that. The the biggest innovation the cereal aisle has seen in decades is maybe being a granola with slightly reduced sugar or something like that. And there was just all these little incremental improvements in the I.O., but nobody had actually tried to completely reimagine cereal for the modern consumer. And when I say completely reimagine for the modern consumer, I mean take cereal through the innovation that we've seen in categories like ice cream or candy, where brands have come in and they've just flipped the protein and sugar on their heads. They've used totally different ingredients profiles to try and mimic the taste and texture of that classic product. And so we thought it could be an amazing opportunity if we could come in and recreate the taste and texture that everybody loves about classic traditional sugary cereals, but do so without using sugar, without using carbs and without using artificial ingredients. At first we thought there was probably a good reason why nobody had done it, uh, because it struck us as a little bit odd that this hadn't been done before, especially because we'd seen it done in all these categories again and again. And so we started asking people, why has nobody created a truly better for you breakfast cereal? And the answers we got were not very satisfactory. People would tell us things like, well, the three big cereal companies own the entire aisle. It's going to be hard to get shelf space. But we knew from prior experience at Exo that if you create enough hype around your brand, the retailers want you. And so that didn't seem like a legitimate hurdle. And then people would say to us, well, cereal is classically a very cheap product. Nobody would ever pay more than $4 for a box of cereal, even if it's healthy. But again, that didn't really seem like a good reason to us because we had seen time and time again Again, different categories prove that to be untrue, whether you're looking at personal care and there's natural deodorants that sell at three times the price of old school deodorants or ice cream or candy or cold pressed juice or whatever it might be. So we heard all these bad reasons why nobody had done it. And so we tried to then do it ourselves. So we spent about six months experimenting with every protein source you can imagine, every natural sweetener you can imagine, trying to see if it was possible from a recipe perspective to create that taste and texture without the junk ingredients And after endless iterations, we finally nailed a formula we were proud of, started building the brand, and then that culminated in us launching in April of 2019.
0: And so what was your first product? We
1: launched with four flavors of this high-protein, low-carb, zero-sugar cereal. All of the flavors sort of modeled on classic childhood flavors. So we had a chocolate, a frosted, a fruity... And uh, like honey nuts as well.
0: And are they all the same form factor? Are they all a little nugget? Are some of them flakes? I, I feel like they're like one of the things with cereal is they all have, many have their sort of sort of keystone brand that that people think about. And I know that they're all under a bigger umbrella. But did you think about launching with one sort of sort of flagship, this is Magic Spoon and then iterating from there? Or do you want it all to be just similar to to other ones that people might be thinking about?
1: That's an amazing question. And we thought a lot about this early on is to what extent do we have this umbrella brand versus core brands like built out around each flavor, which is, of course, what some of the larger cereal companies do. Mm-hmm. Our, our thinking was that as a small scrappy startup, it would be diluting our small amount of funding to spread it amongst several individual flavor brands. So we created Magic Spoon as as the brand. And so they're all Magic Spoon. We do have different characters built out for each flavor but it's it's the same brand regardless of what the flavor is and it's also the same shape so they're all a o shape basically like a loop uh, regardless of the
0: flavor got it and what so with the final formula what did you land on for protein and sugar
1: yeah it's a dairy based protein so we use milk protein isolate and whey protein isolate for for a couple of reasons it is the highest quality protein in terms of amino acids so I think the healthiest for you from a purely nutritional perspective. And it also lends itself to the best texture. So by using a, a whey and milk brace protein, the cereal itself has like a slight sort of creamy taste and texture. And so once you add milk, it, it's even more delicious. And then for the sweeteners, we landed in a blend of three sweeteners. So we use allulose, monk fruit, and stevia. And we use the three of them in in a certain combination that allows us to most closely mirror the taste of, of real traditional sugar.
0: Does using a milk-based protein, do you think that, were you worried about it not being plant-based and sort of losing out on a, a core consumer who might be buying your product?
1: We thought about it and it, it was a concern. It was ultimately overridden by the fact that it tastes better and it's a better quality protein. In formulating any food product, it's all about compromise, right? Mm-hmm. So you, you cannot create something that is, the healthiest, the best tasting, the cheapest. And so every single choice you make, you're trading off those three things as well as a bunch of smaller things. And so even down to the point of, should we have zero grams of sugar or two grams of sugar, we're trading off nutrition and taste there. And so every half gram of actual sugar we put in, for example, is gonna make it taste a little bit better. We decided it was very important for us to have zero grams of sugar. And so we didn't do that. Likewise for protein, Every gram of protein more is better for some consumers. It's going to add some cost as well. Protein is far more expensive than traditional cereal ingredients. And so that was why we landed in like the 13, 14 gram protein mark. We decided that was enough protein for people that really care about it, not extra protein that people didn't really need um, and just sort of the right the right balance there. But all of these decisions are tough to make. And we did a lot of surveying and focus groups up front, and we continue to do so. And so a lot of these things have actually changed over time
0: as well. So what was your initial sort of launch plan? All direct-to-consumer, is that correct? And sort of how how did you go about it? Who were you trying to reach, and how did it go?
1: Yeah, so it was at the time 100% direct-to-consumer, and actually it still is wow. almost entirely direct-to-consumer. So at this point, we're, we're 100% online, but we do a little bit of Amazon okay. as well as DTC right now. The strategy initially was to go after people like ourselves. So besides the, the sort of business observation about it, the market size and the, and the gap for what we thought was a much needed product, my co-founder and I grew up like most people, just loving cereal. And then like many people, we stopped eating it when we started paying attention to nutrition. So we believed there were lots of other people like us out there who skew on the younger side, who have amazing fun memories of eating sugary cereal in the mornings, and then left the cereal category to start eating things like yogurt or protein bars or green juices or oatmeal or other perceived healthier breakfast options. But all of those people, we believed like ourselves, would be thrilled to have a bowl of actual cereal and leave behind the green juice or the oatmeal or whatever it was that we were forcing ourselves to eat that we didn't actually enjoy. So those were the target consumers. And initially we tried to Find them and tell them about us through influencers. So the first round of financing we raised before we launched was was led by one fund called Collaborative Fund, but the other half of the round was actually all influencers. So we had a couple dozen health and wellness influencers who invested in the business pre-launch, and then they evangelized about the brand when we launched, and that enabled us to acquire a large number of customers without spending the usual sort of D to C dollars on Facebook ads that the most brands are forced to pour money into during a launch campaign.
0: Wow. So was that very intentional? Did you say when you were raising your initial round, we're going to be pitching to specifically these types of influencers, hopefully they'll invest, and from there we'll get, you know, all the, this, these types of earned media as a result?
1: Yeah, 100% intentional. It, it was actually a strategy we used in our last company as well, on a smaller scale. So we had several influencers who were investors in our last business, um, people like Tim Ferriss, Ben Greenfield. And so this time around, we did a, a similar thing, but on a, on a larger scale. And we worked with a, a group called Wild Ventures and they were also an investor in our prior business and they helped sort of syndicate and bring together all of these influencers so that we, we sort of don't have to necessarily like deal with them all on an individual basis because that can be overwhelming to have hundreds of, of small investors in a cap table. But it was very intentional and they were also people who really believed in what we were doing and really loved the product. And so... With influencer marketing, it obviously gets gets a bad rap sometimes now because there are many influencers that will just endorse a product for the the cash and often their audience can tell. It can be transparent that they actually don't use or love the product. And so actually getting influencers early on who not only loved the product and believed in the business, but loved it and believed in it enough to actually put money into it rather than taking money from us. That also mm-hmm. came through, I think, in their endorsements early on, and their audience could could tell that they actually really were endorsing this product.
0: Do you think that your your pitch was slightly changed when you were talking to a more influencery audience where you focused more on the storytelling as opposed to the, you know, maybe the the business fundamentals? Or did you find that it was sort of the same pitch, pitch tech throughout?
1: When we were talking to influencers as investors in the business?
0: Yourself? Yeah, exactly.
1: Um, it, it depends on the influencer. A lot of them actually do, do a fair amount of angel investing. And so they were incredibly interested in the, in the economics and the financials. But they're also very product-driven. And they also know that if their audience is not into the product then it's not going to work. And they're investing because they believe they can move the needle and increase the chances of success in the same way that some VCs might also say that they can move the needle and increase the chance of success through introductions or or whatever it might be. But these influencers can do it in a very, very tangible way very quickly. And so they're very interested in the product and in the ingredients and in the health claims because they know if that's all not buttoned up and aligned with their audience, then they cannot post about it authentically and have their audience actually get into it as well.
0: All right, we're going to take a quick break right now. We'll be right back after this message from our sponsor. So let's talk about the last couple of years cuz you launched in 2019 and then you know it's always interesting to see how how a product uh grows in the market the first year but then it seems like right as the second year started coronavirus hit which uh did a really interesting number to many many brands in the CPG space and especially online brands. So just sort of walk me through what the what the last two years have been like, what you noticed and then did you did you make any big changes uh when there were huge demand shifts um, as a result of, you know, the last year plus craziness?
1: Yeah, our, our business has actually looked remarkably similar over the past couple of years, just at greater scale. So we're still very much focused on direct-to-consumer. We're still very much focused on a single product category, which is high protein, low carb, delicious breakfast cereal. And we're still based here in New York, growing the team quickly. So there were, when we, when we first launched, it was just myself, my co-founder. At the beginning of coronavirus, there were six of us. Now there are 23 of us here in New York, and we try to be very narrowly focused on doing one thing well. I think that was one of the larger learnings from our last business, where we were convincing people to eat crickets. We were building an international supply chain around crickets. We were working through the regulations, and it it was several businesses at once, and that's very hard for a small startup to do well. And so with Magic Spoon, we want to be maniacally focused on creating the best possible products because there is a lot of competition there as well. And we want to be narrowly focused on channels to make sure that we do it right and don't spread ourselves too thin. So it's actually a remarkably similar business right now to, to a couple of years ago, just obviously vastly greater scale today.
0: Walk me through the scale, uh, let's say March um, April 2020. I've talked with a few different brands and especially in similar place to yours, where, you know, people were seeing shortages at the grocery store. And so that presented a ripe opportunity to to present uh, an alternative, maybe a little bit of a more expensive alternative, but they were they were looking for pretty much anything. Is that something that that you saw? Were you seeing more people Google searching you know, online cereal and they found Magic Spoon and then, you know, you, you were selling more for that for that time. Talk, talk me through that.
1: Not really, actually, because we're not really a substitute product. Like, we're not cereal. We are protein powder in the shape of cereal. So the kind of consumer that's buying Magic Spoon is actually not the person that was looking for boxes of traditional cereal in the grocery store and then they may bought us as a substitute. Our customers right now are people that stopped eating cereal because they decided it was terrible for them. And they're eating Magic Spoon instead of bars or shakes or juices or some other perceived healthy breakfast option. That being said, we did see a massive increase in demand across the board, I think just because there was an increased uh, desire to purchase food online Mm -hmm. period. and, And obviously some of that has continued, some of it hasn't. And there was also a lot of people that were trying to be healthy because they weren't maybe able to work out as much or get out the house as much and I think harder to quantify but there was also a bit of a move towards nostalgia and, and towards products that gave feelings of sort of comfort and joy at a time when many people were were looking for that and Magic Spoon was able to offer a product that gave those feelings of nostalgia and joy and reminded people of childhood but in a way that wasn't also terrible for you. And so I think that was a bit of a unique offering that they contributed to, to some, some successful increase in demand for us during that time as well.
0: So with the nostalgia, was it just simply because of the act of putting a spoon in a bowl and there being milk and some kind of product? Or did you brand it in a certain way that was trying to evoke a certain type of nostalgia?
1: Yeah, both. I mean, we we very deliberately wanted to create this as a, as a childlike cereal for grownups. And so on a... And that that sort of filtered through to everything right so we we chose to put our product in a traditional cereal box not because that is objectively good packaging. It's not. Like a stand-up, like closable pouch would be objectively better packaging. We chose the cereal box because it creates that feeling of nostalgia and reminds people of classic cereal. And likewise, in the design, we created these different characters for every flavor that are like slightly psychedelic grown-up versions of classic cereal characters to nod to that childhood feeling. And then down to the flavors as well. Our flavors are junk cereal flavors. They're fruity, they're chocolate, they're frosted, and it's very sweet also. So, so every part of it is designed to make you feel like a kid again, make you feel like you're just carefree watching cartoons and not stressed about adult responsibilities. So I, I don't think it's just putting putting a spoon in something. It's It's many different aspects of, of the product and the brand.
0: And so did your marketing mix change a great deal as the volume and demand uh, increased over the last year or sort of how, you know, how have you been sort of trying to acquire new customers after the initial push of the first year?
1: Yeah, it, it changes very often. And I think that's probably true of most D2C brands. We've been very careful from the beginning to not be too overly reliant on Facebook. That's obviously a, a classic mistake of lots of D2C brands. And that that's proving to be um, lucky now, especially because some brands are seeing obviously rising prices in Facebook ads right now. But Mm -hmm. we've continued to lean very heavily into influencer marketing. And at the beginning, like I described earlier, that meant small health and wellness influencers investing in the brand. But now it takes a variety of different forms. So we we still do that, but we also do some partnerships uh, with celebrities, whether that's them investing or otherwise. We've done co-branded flavors and custom boxes with influencers and celebrities. Most recently, we actually put seven very large TikTok stars on the front of a couple of new flavors of cereal. And they promoted it across their TikToks and various social media channels. And then we also do various other types of influencer marketing in between. We sponsor a lot of podcasts actually, and that's something that we didn't do during the first year of business, but now it's one of our our larger channels. And conceptually we treat podcast advertising just like we treat influencer marketing. And so to us, whether it's a, a host of a show talking about our product, or a Instagram or doing an Instagram story about it, it's conceptually the same thing. And we you know, we sort of measure it in a similar way. Um, and actually more recently, we just started testing TV. So we're doing that for the first time this month. And we're going to learn more about the results that in the coming weeks. That's super exciting too.
0: The podcasting thing is super interesting, and not just because you're on a podcast. And I I will say to the viewers, this is not uh, sponsored by Magic Spoon. (laughs) I feel like attribution, and I'm sure you know this is very difficult with podcasts, um, much different than it is with Instagram, for example. So what are you finding? And specifically with a CPG product... How do you what do you find works best in terms of attribution because I feel like when it's a bigger ticketed price item you can you can put a code at the end and you might be able to find they, they might search it more often but in this way it's more about just gaining mind share am I correct and so like how are, how are you sort of figuring out whether or not people are gravitating more towards magic spoon as a result of you being on so and so podcast.
1: We take a very direct response approach to it, and so we we do all those things that you were perhaps imagining a, a large mattress brand <laughs> might do. So we 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 do have vanity URLs, we do have coupon codes, and so um you know the host will say they'd go to you know magicspoon slash potsaveamerica or whatever it might be, use code potsaveamerica, and that helps a lot with tracking. Obviously, not everybody follows that. Some people just go home and a week later Google magic spoon and forget where they even heard it. <laughs> but we use post-purchase surveys for that reason. And so with the combination of vanity URLs, codes, post-purchase surveys, or we ask people where they find out about us, we're able to hone in on a, on a rough idea of of how well the podcast is performing. And by doing that a lot over time as well, we've been able to get a view on what kind of multiplier to apply. So we know basically roughly what percentage of people for a certain kind of podcast might use the code or the vanity URL versus what percentage of people will forget and just Google it. And so we can we can apply some formulas and get quite precise there. Um and you know we're doing TV now, which is going to be even harder. So so some people forget where they heard about you on a podcast and Google you, but on TV, very few people use the vanity URL or the code. And so that's that's going to be even more challenging.
0: So walk me through, what is the TV strategy? And is it just sort of a, is it a volume play, a mindshare play? Are you doing connected TV? Are you doing broadcast? Sort of how are you approaching this?
1: We're testing everything. So we're testing both connected as well as Old-school linear TV. And for us, we're at a scale now a couple of years in where it's it's important to constantly be testing and unlocking new channels. So we we either have tested or are testing most marketing channels you could think of that could work from a direct response perspective. So we don't have a huge amount of interest at this point to be investing in marketing that's purely brand marketing we we want to be doing marketing that that is driving results in a sort of concrete way especially because we're we're direct to consumer right now so that that's the lens through which we're we're analyzing and judging the success of all these marketing channels and for us tv seems like the next one to test and so we're testing a variety of different types of videos and angles testing different lengths so 15 second versions 30 second versions and then many, many different channels, both on linear classic TV as as well as connected TV.
0: And so you keep saying, you know, your DTC for now. Um, can you talk to me about a, you know, when did you enter Amazon? How how are you using, how are you viewing that overall Amazon strategy? And also, you know, your your original story about wanting to enter cereal was about walking through the cereal aisle. So what when are you thinking about entering retail, and h- how would you approach that?
1: We will be in retail eventually, just like every direct-to-consumer brand is in retail eventually. Mm-hmm. And that that's true if you're selling eyewear or mattresses or cereal. There, there is a ceiling somewhere for any mm-hmm. direct-to-consumer category. And at some point, we will approach that ceiling. And before we do, we want to be omnichannel. So that's not in the immediate future, but it definitely is in the plan for Magic Spoon to to be eventually everywhere that cereal is is bought and sold. In the more immediate term, yeah, Amazon is somewhere that we we launched in a small and controlled way earlier this year. So we currently have just a single SKU, just our variety pack on Amazon.com. And that was, it was mostly just because we, we knew that there was a huge amount of search volume on Amazon.com for our brand. And... Other brands were capitalizing on that search volume. So to, to the point earlier about some people maybe be hearing us on a podcast ad and then searching for us, some of those searches would happen on Amazon. So somebody would hear our ad, search us on Amazon. We wouldn't be there, but one of our competitors would be there and they would bid on our branded term and they would capture that sale that we were actually doing the advertising for. And so for us, first and foremost, Amazon is, is just somewhere we wanted to be to capture all of the demand that we were creating for our brand. Then there is a a next phase of Amazon, which is all the people who who only shop on Amazon that maybe don't even know about Magic Spoon, but they're searching for healthy breakfasts, for keto snacks, for gluten free snacks, whatever it might be. We can actually show up there and and sort of educate them on who we are there and and view it as a marketing channel as opposed to just a sales outlet.
0: It seems like you're viewing it sort of as a gateway to DTC. And are you, like, do you, for your packaging for Amazon, are you are you trying to sort of guide people towards? Hey, we have we have more flavors here. You know, we we only have this one skew there, but you can see, check us out over on our website.
1: It's it's tough, and that that's something that I think a lot of DTC brands think about with retail in general, where relationships with the retailers or Amazon are really important. So I I think it's always a little bit dangerous when a brand enters retail, and their strategy is to bring the consumer back to their site afterwards mm-hmm. doesn't really align incentives. So we're we're definitely conscious of that. And a lot of people just buy stuff on Amazon, period. And they don't really want to be going to individual DTC sites to find a one-off product. And so that's fine. So we want to be on Amazon for that consumer. That being said, products like our limited edition flavors, which we actually release every four to eight weeks, those are just in our DTC site. So there will always be a far, far broader range of products that are only available on our DTC site. So for the most loyal customers or who want the broadest range of products, that'll be the place that that makes sense for them. But if you're you're not a DTC shopper and you prefer just to stay on Amazon for everything that's delivered, then we'll have our variety pack there and um, maybe a couple of other flavors as well.
0: Got it. Well, we're just about running out of time, but I wanted to do a, a forward-looking question, as I always try to do. But just, what's on your radar? What are What are you hoping for the year to come? It seems like you're going to be keeping things predominantly online. Uh, is it just getting more eyeballs? Will you know? W- will there be any more sort of expansion? What, what are you thinking about?
1: Yeah, I always feel terrible. I have such a boring answer to this question, <laughs> but it's it's really just more of the same. <laughs> you know, we're not we're not entering twenty new categories. Uh, we're not going into 30,000 retail stores, we are continuing to focus on making the best-tasting, healthy cereal and getting it into as many people's bowls
0: as possible. And that that's the only goal right now. Well, Gabby, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you for having me. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Modern Retail Podcast, a show by Digiday. If you haven't already, please do subscribe and head to Apple Podcasts to leave us a review and a rating. See you next week.